Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. When federal employees open their first paychecks of the new year, most will see a bigger number. That's thanks to that 5.2% federal pay raise for general schedule employees in 2024. But not everyone will get their full raise. That's because of something called pay compression. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me now with the latest. And Drew, compression sounds like squeezing, and squeezing and pay don't sound like great words that go together. That's right, but that pretty much is what it is. The idea is that over time, as federal raises go up for the general schedule, but there's a bit of a pay cap for some of the most senior-level federal employees on the general schedule, uh, that's where you see them kind of hitting this pay ceiling over time and Depending on the the federal pay raise, the year it is, and what those in this other pay system get, it varies year to year. But it is this phenomenon that just generally pushes your pay up against a barrier as you get higher up. So does that mean it gets worse and worse each year, the compression, because those at the higher levels, especially political levels, their pay doesn't necessarily go up? And so people are getting closer and closer to that ceiling. Is that what compression basically is? Somewhat. It's a little bit complicated to say that it just gets worse every single year because it really varies on a number of factors. So if you actually think about where the the pay compression comes from, it's because this most senior level ranks in, in the general schedule, and it depends on your location, so it won't affect everyone in the same way. But some of those at the those that very top part of the general schedule uh, are capped due to not being able to exceed by law level four of the executive schedule. And that number does go up year to year. It's based on the Employment Cost Index, or ECI. Generally, it will go up a little bit, but a lot of times it won't go up as much as the federal pay raise for the general schedule overall. And that's where you start to see that disparity. So, for example, this year, 2024, we saw a 5.2% average pay raise for the general schedule. The executive schedule, that level four number went up about 4.5%, I believe it was. So, That's where you see that little bit of disparity, and there were actually several new steps and grades in a few different locality pay areas that were added to that pay compression range, I suppose, and and are now hitting the pay ceiling. So who gets compressed, so to speak, those that are close to that level four of the senior executive service, people highly ranked but not quite at that level? They keep getting closer and closer to it, and they're moving faster than it's moving. So it is essentially when someone who is on the GS pay system, but their pay, if it was going to have the, for for example, 5.2% raise, uh, and that would have put them above what the level four on the executive schedule gets, that's where you would see that cap. So for this year, it is $191,900 is the executive schedule level four pay cap. So anyone on the general schedule whose pay by a 5.2% pay raise would have exceeded that, their pay is going to be capped at that exact number. Got it. And you did some looks close up at locality and how that affects all of this coming ahead. What did you find? Generally, it's not really a huge surprise. Those that are living in higher cost areas are the ones who are going to be most affected uh, by pay compression. That's because, you know, we have these now 58 different locality pay areas across the country. And depending on what uh, private sector workers make versus public sector, 
those in higher cost areas are going to have a little bit higher pay raises than the 5.2%. So, for example, in San Francisco, that's one of the uh, areas with the worst levels of pay compression. They have most of their GS-15s are are above or hitting that pay ceiling, as well as now steps 9 and 10 at GS-14. Uh, so that's that's where it is the worst. I guess besides senior executives, who would like to fix pay compression and what are some of the solutions to actually fix it? You do have the Biden administration saying in their budget proposal from fiscal 2024 that they are looking to address the issue. Uh, it has gotten worse in 2024 as well as in, in other recent years. The idea behind this, you know, some may say, OK, just because, you know, uh, because these people are at higher level pays, um, you know, why is it such a big deal if you're making almost $200,000 in salary? Why is it? Why is pay compression a big deal? You have a lot of different stakeholders and groups saying that these people are managers and they should be kind of uh, rewarded for the work. And it's more a matter of principle rather than the actual salary that they do have. Well, if you're at the senior executive level for anyway, and you're running a large multi-billion dollar program, $191,000, frankly, is actually not that much money. Uh, especially, you know, when you compare to what people that run, I mean, look at General Motors chief makes millions and millions and millions of dollars a year for a, you know, mediocre performing organization to be charitable. So I can see the argument there. Right. And and to think about it in another way as well, federal employees who do hit that pay ceiling, then from there on are going to have smaller pay raises. And eventually when you have more people from uh, lower grades, lower steps, kind of reaching that same level, then you can argue that there's years of experience difference between these two, but they're getting the same pay for for different levels of experience. Right. And by the same token, you could work and gain experience and get better and better at something, but the pay increases become smaller and smaller till you bump up against a ceiling, and then that's compression. So is there anything actually going on to try to fix it besides people admiring this horrible problem? Well, as I mentioned, the, the Biden administration is looking to try to address the problem. They said that they would have a legislative proposal on it. We haven't seen anything yet. I actually spoke to OPM Deputy Director Rob Shriver the other day. He said they're continuing to work through those issues and hope to have more to share soon, but he didn't really give a solid timeline on it. Other than that, in Congress, there is a bill called the Pay Compression Relief Act. This was introduced by a group of House Democrats, and that would essentially try to address the problem uh, by allowing locality pay adjustments for GS employees who end up reaching that pay cap, which is part of the problem and, and why you see a lot of that pay compression in the first place. So is it fair to say that pay compression is worse in the locality pay areas than in the areas of the country that don't have locality pay? The rest of U.S. locality or those who aren't in a locality don't get impacted by pay compression, and not every locality does get impacted by pay compression. There's, I believe it's now 35 of the 58 locality pay areas who do have at least some federal employees who are being affected by it. Um, That's about 60% of localities who have pay compression to some extent. So it's really a surgical fix that's needed, not some grand scheme costing billions and affecting hundreds of thousands of federal employees. I think what I'm going to be looking for is what the Biden administration puts out and see what their proposal is going to look like. That'll kind of tell what they're thinking. And if it's something that could be possible, we'll just have to see. 
Well, it is annoying for people, I think, if you feel like you're getting more responsibility and getting better at your job and improving performance of your mission delivery. It'd be nice to have that reflected in your pay. And again, not many feds do this because they expect to be paid like General Motors, but they would like to at least be paid by what the government is best capable of. Right. I think that that is a good point. And just one other note that I'll mention, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, or FEBS, this year showed that 57%, only 57% of federal employees were satisfied with their pay. So that is quite low. It's it's actually declined since, I believe, about four or five years ago. Uh, so that's definitely something to, to keep in mind. And I think this is, for a lot of senior executives in government, a really big concern for them. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out all of her coverage of this at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. 
And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.